on Sound Welcome to the August Sound on Sound podcast, which coincides with the September issue of the magazine. I'm Editor-in-Chief Paul White, and with me is Technical Editor Hugh Rob Johns. Hi there. As ever, there's a lot to look forward to in the August issue, but first, let's see what Hugh's been working on since he returned from his holiday. Well, holiday seems ages ago now. Uh, I've done a few more mics, but actually I'm still waiting for the delivery of new playthings to arrive, and it should have come last week, and it hasn't, and uh, probably it'll turn up while I'm here recording this podcast with Paul. But uh, hopefully I'll get that today or tomorrow, and then we'll start doing some more stuff for the next issue. But instead of that, uh, what I've been doing is some more work for a forthcoming bookazine that we're working on about monitoring. I've also been doing quite a lot of behind-the-scenes forum work following our recent reorganisation there, and I've also been testing a new beta software release for Sadie 6, but the thing I've actually really been enjoying is restoring an old Studer A807 tape recorder. I picked it up a couple of weeks ago for a very reasonable price before I went on holiday. And I've already cured a couple of faults it had on it. And I've realigned the basic electronic circuitry. I've given it a very good clean, which it really did desperately need. Uh, and the next thing on the list is a, a really good degaussing. And then once I've done that, I'll start a, a real proper lineup. And I'm really enjoying it, actually. It's great fun. It's a long time since I've seen such poor test figures on my AP test set, I have to say. Technology-wise, it really doesn't compare to modern digital stuff. But it's good fun. I'm really enjoying it, and it sounds great. And I also plan to do a bit of experimentation with some hot rodding in terms of the electronics. A few chip changes and that sort of thing, tweakies. I'll report back on the project later. What about you, Paul? What's been keeping you busy? Well, I've finished a feature describing some useful vocal production techniques, and of course we've been busy on the Studio SOS front, this time fixing up a small dubbing studio in London's Delane Lee Studios for Hans Zimmer to use while composing the music for the new Sherlock Holmes film. You'll be able to find out how we got on with that in a forthcoming issue. I've also tested the Mark II versions of the Mackie MR5 and MR8 monitors, and these are designed to appeal to those who can't afford the HR series monitors. Another interesting project involved taking an unorthodox approach to help separate the vocal sound from the acoustic guitar in a mix. And again, that will be appearing as an article very soon. Sound on Sound Features Coming up in the September issue, we have a wealth of practical techniques and features, as well as reviews of some very hot products. Inside Track goes behind the scenes with Adele's second album, 21. Tom Elmhurst and producer Paul Epworth explain how they created its multi-platinum lead single, Rolling in the Deep. Classic Tracks this month looks at the story behind John Cougar's Jack and Diane. It's a classic celebrated portrait of a small-town American life that might never have existed, let alone top the Billboard Hot 100, if it hadn't been for Mick Ronson. We have a few practical tips for getting your kick and bass sounds to work together, while Joe Leach talks about the cowshed studio built of straw for this year's Glastonbury Festival. The studio was equipped with 24-track tape and a grand piano. How did it survive the traditional Glastonbury mud? Well, you have to read to find out. And how did it survive the big bad wolf? That's what I want to know. (laughs) Good question. And talking of unusual approaches, Studio SOS this month comes from Turkey, where a spare hotel room was converted to a workable studio using only the materials to hand. Prodigy live engineer John Burton talks to some of the world's top sound engineers about the similarities and the differences between live sound and studio work. But if you're struggling with your mix, you might like to refer to our article outlining the 10 biggest mixing mistakes. I think I'd probably do all of those. We also have more contentious information on the loudness wars and its effect on dynamic range. Our reviews section is pretty busy this month too, with Arturia's Spark drum machine, the Flea 47 capacitor mic, and Blue Sky's SAT 6.5 EXR monitor system. Grimm's Audio CC1 master clock puts in a timely appearance, and we have a few items of choice PA kit, as well as Radial's Workhorse 5000 modular processing and summing system. There's also a look at FXpansion's Geist sampling drum machine software, Neve's 4081 quad preamp, I did that one, and Telefunken's Copperhead valve mic. 
We also take Universal Audio's UA2 satellite system for a spin, fit a set of Kinman's Impersonator 54 noiseless pickups to our favourite recording Strat, and test Apogee's new Symphony audio interface. I did that one too. Of course, there's lots more that we don't have time to list here, including even more reviews, our usual door technique columns, and sample library coverage. News. One item that particularly interested me when I stumbled across it was the Ravish Sitar emulator from Electroharmonics. That's available within the next month or two, and it includes a simulation of a sitar plus its sympathetic drone strings, with an option to set the key for the piece being played so that the drones play the right notes. It's also possible to freeze the drones to provide a continuous bed for uh, whittling over the top. Some of the design concepts, I think, have a far wider implication for creating synth-like sounds directly from a standard guitar signal. So my prediction is that Electroharmonics is going to be the company to watch for uh, guitar synthesis-type pedals that don't rely on pitch tracking in the foreseeable future. Makes me want to curry just hearing about it. I just want to curry anyway. (laughs) Neumann announced three new microphones and a digital converter interface as their digital microphone line continues to evolve. The new additions are the KMS-104D and 105D vocal microphones and the KMR-81D shotgun microphone and the interface is the DMI-2 portable digital converter. When used with either the original DMI-2 or the DMI-2 portable digital microphone interface and the remote control software, or RCS, Pre-program settings can be stored for different performance applications. The KMS-104D and 105D both have a wide 125 dB dynamic range and can handle levels up to 141 dB SPL or 159 dB SPL using their 18 dB pre-attenuation option. There's an integrated peak limiter, compressor and de-esser to prevent clipping. The DMI-2 portable hardware supports two digital microphones at the same time and allows adjustment of gain, pre-attenuation and low-cut filter settings at the device. The front panel display shows the selected gain, the current signal level and any gain reduction where microphone presets can also be stored inside the DMI-2 portable for use within the field. Native Instruments will release Contact 5 in September, offering enhanced sound shaping filters and effect algorithms as well as superior time stretching, vintage sampling modes and a lot more. Some of the 37 new filters also employ their unique adaptive resonance concept, which automatically manages the filter characteristics to prevent unpleasant sonic artefacts from excessive resonance peaks. SPL's transient designer has been integrated into contact, and there's a new analogue tape modelling saturator to add natural compression, subtle organic overdrive and a bit of general soupy gloop. Contact 5 introduces both a powerful new instrument bus system plus KSP-based MIDI file support. In addition to its 43GB factory library with its eight separate instrument collections, Contact 5 now also includes a free download of the new Contact-based Retro Machines Mark II instrument, and this offers an assortment of highly sought-after classic synths, complete with vintage-style arpeggiator and chord players, and it also takes advantage of the new analogue-type filter models. For those iphone files amongst you, Fostex are now shipping the AR4i Stereo Audio Interface for iPhone, designed to provide professional stereo audio recording for videos taken using the iPhone 4. Featuring two removable cardioid plug-in microphones that swivel for placement and can be mounted vertically or horizontally, the AR4i serves as a cradle for the iPhone 4 and includes mounting hardware for a tripod or other kind of camera mount. An LED level meter is provided for input level monitoring, and a headphone jack facilitates monitoring of the stereo input. Recording input levels and EQ can be further adjusted using the dedicated iPhone app. Well, that was the news, but remember, for more up-to-date news, just hop onto the Sound on Sound website and take a look. Sound on Sound.
Time for Q&A. First caller says, I've recorded an acoustic drum kit in my garage, but the sound picked up by the overhead mic seems a little bit too live. Is there anything I can do to dry it up short of re-recording it all with blankets around the kit? Well, Hugh, this is uh, one for you to start and one for me to finish, I think. (laughs) It's a tricky thing to do. Um, Garages tend to be lots of concrete and brick walls, so they will naturally be quite live. And once you've got that liveness on the recording, it's very hard to take reverberation away. I mean, there are tools out there these days that attempt to do that and some of them beginning to get quite good but historically it's been a very difficult thing to do. One of the ways you could try and do it is with some downwards expansion but probably the best approach initially at least is to start with the close mics and try and make as much use of those as you can because they'll obviously capture the direct sound most strongly and have the least amount of room reverberation that you can possibly get. As far as the overheads are concerned well again a lot of filtering might help on that use a high pass filter get rid of as much of the low end drum sound as you possibly can which will get rid of most of the low end room reverberation and try and equalize them to get just the characteristics that you want from the cymbals that might help next step would be some downwards expansion an expander that as the sound falls away in level adds a lot of gain reduction to push it down even further so that will then tend to attenuate the dying reverb tails in the room quite quickly and that might help to dry it up a lot but one of the other tools you could use is one of the transient designer type programs and you use those quite a lot yourself don't you paul yes this is the spl plugin they also do one called dverb which is essentially the tail end of a transient designer it's a bit like the downward expansion he was talking about but it doesn't require you to set a threshold it actually derives its own threshold from the input material so it works over a 30 or 40 db dynamic range without you having to set anything Essentially, there's one knob that makes the release sound more compressed or more expanded. So if you turn the thing anti-clockwise, you get this effect of damping. I wouldn't want to take this too far because then things would start to sound unnatural, but I found it dries out an over-live drum kit reasonably well, providing you're not too heavy-handed with the controls. And it may give you the opportunity then to add a bit of more sympathetic room ambience using a convolution reverb. Sure. I think the one thing you need to be slightly careful of, though, is, is not to go overboard processing the drums in isolation and try and make them sound tight and clean in isolation and then have to add reverb afterwards. It might be better to build the mix up as best you can and see how the room reverberation that you've got fits in that mix and then decide how to process it, because otherwise you can get a bit carried away and take things too far and have to end up undoing it all again. That's very true of anything in a mix, really. You have to evaluate it in context because something that can sound very reverberant on its own might sound fairly dry once you've got the thing in the mix. But if you are going to try one of these techniques, um, try leaving the close mics untreated because they'll be reasonably dry, as he says, and then apply some kind of expansion or one of these SPL Magic plugins to the overheads and just see if you can damp those down a little. Okay, I've got the next question here, and it's a bit of a newbie one. It says, why can't I use an XLR to jack cable to connect microphones to the spare line inputs of my mixer? All the mic inputs are already being used, but when I try this, I get virtually no level at all. Do you want to start this one off? Yeah, sure, Hugh. That's um, because dynamic microphones and indeed capacitor microphones, which also require phantom power, uh, don't produce a very high output signal. It's only a few tens of millivolts compared to the volts that you get on a line level signal. So you need 50, maybe 60 dBs of gain to bring the thing up to the level, which means that plugging it into a line input is going to give you virtually nothing, even with the gain turned flat out. The other thing I alluded to earlier is, of course, the phantom power consideration. You only get phantom power on the uh, mic inputs, at least on a properly designed mixer. We've come across a couple where it also appears on the line inputs, but it shouldn't. And therefore, your capacitor mics are not going to work. 
So your only solution really is to buy a little separate microphone preamp, and there are some quite cheap ones around, and plug those into their spare line inputs. I do appreciate the problem because a lot of the little mixes you buy these days have got a certain number of mic inputs and then you've got extra channels which are only line inputs and it's quite frustrating not being able to use them. Yes, I've got an old Mackie mixer, a little um, VLZ2, and it's got six mic inputs and then it's got four stereo line channels and it'd be really nice sometimes to be able to use those line channels to handle extra microphones when that's the kind of work you're doing. But of course you can't because, as Paul says, they just don't offer enough gain. Typically a line input might only have plus or minus 10 dB of gain swing on its on its knob, whereas what you need is something like 40, 50 or 60 dBs of gain. And as Paul says, obviously it doesn't provide any phantom power if you're trying to use powered microphones. But what you can do is, as Paul says, find one of these outboard preamplifiers. And they range anything from £50 up to several thousand pounds, depending on your budget. And that will raise the mic level up to line level, which you can then put into the mixer as a line level signal. And that's the solution to the problem, albeit an expensive one, possibly. Especially if you buy the one that costs several thousand pounds. Yeah, as I would, obviously. <laughs> as you would, yeah. <laughs> This reader says, As I understand it, a fingerprint EQ, such as Logic's Match EQ, is designed to make the spectrum of one sound match that of another. I've tried this with my finished mixers to make them sound more like some commercial tracks that I like, but it's not really working. The sound's very different, and it seems quite coloured sounding. What am I doing wrong? Well, I think, first of all, Hugh, uh, why don't you explain how these fingerprint EQs work for the benefit of people who haven't met them? Yeah, what these things do, basically, is analyse your source signal, your reference target material, if you like, and work out what the tonality of that is, what the frequency spectrum of that is, as an average thing across the duration that you're analysing. And then they also look at your new material that you want to, to re-equalise and work out what that's doing and then they look at the difference between the two work out an equalisation that would match one into the other and then apply that so it's only changing the tonality of your new signal to try and get close to the average of the tonality of your reference track but it's not doing anything to change the mix as such so if you've got a, a mix which isn't as dense as the original reference mix it can't do anything about that all it can do is, is change the overall tonality so the fact that your mix sounds different to the reference one is because it's a different sounding mix yeah that's true and i've found that it sometimes even helps to have the um the target mix the one that you're trying to sound like in the same musical key because the little spikes and dips in the spectrum uh, are pitch dependent and different musical keys have different peaks and troughs in the spectrum. Yeah, that's probably why it sounds coloured to you, actually. It could well be because it's in a different key, and so the, the tonal peaks and notches are being applied in the wrong places. The other thing that's pretty important is that it's the same kind of general music with the same instrumentation. I mean, it's no good taking a folk track and trying to make it sound like a techno dance hit, because uh, who knows what the EQ is going to come up with. You should have something as close as you can get to what you want, and then... On most of these things, there's an amount control, so rather than go for a 100% conversion, you can kind of just tweak it a little bit to make it more like the other sound. Like most of these things, the further you go with it, the more unnatural the results, so gently does it. Yeah, I think fundamentally the, the thing here is if you're trying to make your mix sound more like a commercial track, you need to develop your mixing skills so that the mix itself ends up sounding like a commercial mix. And these matched EQ kind of things apply a final bit of polish, but they're not going to cure the problem for you. They're not going to do all the donkey work that mix engineers spend the best part of a lifetime trying to master. No, that's true. In fact, sometimes I just use them as a diagnostic tool because once they've created this EQ curve that makes one mix sound more like another, you can see where there's more energy and where there's less energy and maybe where you should either be EQing or rebalancing parts of your original mix rather than using this rather heavy-handed instrument to beat one into shape. Yeah, that's a very good idea, actually, a very good approach. And you can learn a lot from that, obviously, so you, you can see where your mix is different and, and develop your skills that way. 
I have the last Q&A question here. Uh, it says, I've decided to add two more LCD screens to my system so I can see everything at the same time and don't have to keep switching between different views for the arrange page, the mixer page and all that kind of thing. However, this means that the two side screens are now partially in front of my monitoring speakers. What can I do to get around this? I can raise the speaker stands a bit, I think. Is it okay to turn the speakers on their sides? But what about turning them upside down completely? Well, we had this problem to an extent when we went to see Hans Zimmer recently, didn't we? We did, and it is really a problem with people who are doing film work because they have quite a lot of monitors open. And uh, in Hans's case, he had more monitors than most um, Apple stores, I think. I think there were five, weren't there, in his room, or maybe even six, actually. Quite a lot. So the main thing is to get the tweeters pointing at your head, but not to have anything between the tweeters and the woofers, indeed, uh, and yourself. So if that means raising them above the monitors, that's fine, in which case you will need to angle them down. And if you need to turn them upside down to get the tweeters at a more sensible height, that's fine. I'm always very nervous of putting speakers on their side because that really narrows the sweet spot. So if you move slightly left or right, the sound can go off because there's a different time delay between what you're hearing from the one driver and what you're hearing from the other then. I don't know if you want to go into that a bit more, Hugh. Well, yes, basically the, the speakers are designed so that as you go through the crossover region where both the woofer and the tweeter are producing the same signal at the same time, you need to get those signals arriving at the ear at the same time so that you hear the sound as the designer intended. If you put the speakers on their side and you move off to one side or the other of the speaker, then you end up hearing the tweeter before the woofer or the woofer before the tweeter and you get some phase coloration, some comb filtering going on, which messes up the signal. Also, most tweeters are the way they're built into the cabinet they're designed to radiate in a much wider horizontal pattern than they are in a vertical pattern which gives you a very wide sweet spot when they're vertical but when you put it horizontally the sweet spot gets really really narrow this is true of speakers that have got waveguides built in of course yes that's right yeah most of them do these days don't they a lot of them do that's for sure of course the problem with having monitors on a desk and trying to raise them up is keeping them solid so you need some fairly substantial supports for them, he would say. Yeah, you certainly need some strong stands for that. Ideally, some proper made stands for it, or you could wall mount them, I suppose. Or if your table's strong enough, there's always the concrete block approach. I was going to suggest making something out of blocks or even substantial telephone directories, really, but blocks, concrete breeze blocks would be good. So it's something to do with all your several years' issues of sound on sound that you've got in the loft, you could use those. Perfect place to store them, yeah. Once you've built your tower, of course, if you're going to raise these speakers up, you'll need to find some way of angling them down to, so that the front baffle, if you like, is still 90 degrees to you. You could use some of those foam support pads that have angle cutouts to alter the angle. Or if you're building something yourself, then you could just engineer in a bit of a, a lip and a bit of an angle to, uh, to get that right. The other alternative, of course, is not to raise them at all, but split the monitor screens up so that you've got perhaps the bigger one directly in front of you and then the monitors poking through either side of that and then the two extra screens on the outside edges. And that way you can keep your loudspeaker baffles in front of the monitor screen and that would work reasonably well. Mm. Although if you're putting them behind the screens, if they're upside down, you don't have to angle them too far, really. It's when the the normal way up that the things are leaning over at some really frightening angle to try and get the tweeter pointing at your head. But if you, if you flip the things over so the tweeter's at the bottom, uh, it's usually only a fairly gentle angle. Of course, the other thing you can do is to put your computer screens one above the other if you've got some kind of mounting bracket on the back of them. There's no rule that says you have to have the arranged screen on the left and the mixer on the right. You might have one above the other. Of course, you get a bit of neck ache if you're craning up at the top one too often. But if you put the one that you're using most of the time at the bottom, it's doable. I like that. That's a good bit of lateral thinking that I didn't actually think of. Good thinking, that man. As they say, I think so far outside the box that I forget where I put the box in the first place. <laughs> good. Well, on that, I think we ought to draw these things to a close. 
Okay, well, that's all we've got time for, so it's goodbye from me, Paul White, and it's goodbye from Hugh. Bye, thanks for listening again. We'll see you next time, thanks. Bye. Bye.